Good morning, everyone, and welcome. It's great to see you all. I have been looking forward to this because when I received the sermon date from Dale, I realized how well this would tie in with one of the messages we can pull out of this chapter. So I'd like to title today's sermon, Endurance Through Discipline. Take that as you will. It is meant to have a little bit of a double-barreled meaning. Let's start this morning off with a story in light of it being Remembrance Day. This really appealed to me because it's astounding and challenged my perspective on life when I heard it. Ryan Hendrickson started his career as a young man in the American Navy, serving there for a few years, and then he transferred to the Air Force, not finding his place in either of these branches, despite being committed as a sailor and an airman, he transferred again, this time to the army. It was here where he found his passion, passing the grueling selection as one of the famed Green Berets. Ryan trained as an 18 Charlie, a special forces engineer, who carried out, uh, sorry, carried out explosive detection and removal, which in Afghanistan, where he was deployed eventually, was a huge task. Generations of war had left the country riddled with mines and other improvised explosive devices. The first combat tour that Ryan went on saw him entering a village on one fateful day with a group of Afghani commandos and a team of Green Berets. Unwilling to enter the village for fear of IEDs, the Afghans held back despite Ryan persuading them that he was clearing their path. The interpreter, a man Ryan knew better, tried to encourage them that they shouldn't be afraid. And so he pushed on past the uncleared ground. Ryan saw the danger, and under the instruction of an older veteran teammate, he went to pull the man back to relative safety. But in doing so, he had entered the uncleared ground himself. When the man had been pulled back, Ryan turned and looked toward their objective. Something shining in the doorway of a compound caught his eye, and he took that one step too far. He describes not being able to hear the explosion. Confusion and shock overwhelmed him. In the gruesome aftermath, Ryan found that his right leg had all been butt blown off, and that his left leg had severe tissue damage. One would imagine that the story ends there, and that his time serving in that sort of environment was over. Thankfully, there is a however, a big one. For two years, this incredible man battled with rehabilitation. His focus set in on one massive task, return to the special forces. It seems inconceivable. Operating at that level demands nothing short of physical perfection. Why set an almost impossible task for yourself? Yet with the acknowledgement of his own father's wise input and his belief and trust in God, Ryan made a miraculous return. The journey was utterly fraught with struggle and near failure, but he went back to the special forces and remarkably served in a combat role again. 
During a firefight with the Taliban in 2016, he risked his life under enemy fire to rescue three Afghan soldiers cut off from friendly forces and return the bodies of two dead Afghan soldiers under the ethos that no one gets left behind. For his heroic efforts on the battlefield, Sergeant First Class Ryan Hendrickson was awarded a Silver Star, the nation's third highest award for valor. Today, Ryan is involved in mine clearing in Ukraine through his charity, Tip of the Spear. He's retired from the military, but continues to serve his fellow man. His example of endurance and discipline is extraordinary. Today on Remembrance Sunday, we've taken a moment to consider the men and women of the armed forces and their families who have given their service and sacrifice to protect our way of life, and we thank them. Please may you open your Bibles to Hebrews 12. Let's read from verses 1 to 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin, and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. All of us know that in each of our lives, there will be times when we need endurance. The Christian walk is not unchallenging, and we all know that. These first few verses contain some really meaty instructions for how to hang on, how to persevere, how to endure this race in life. Let's take a look at them. Last Sunday, we heard about some of the heroes of our faith. And in the previous chapter, the author is using this to say, there they are, witnessing us in our own race. That's something that would have stirred the Hebrews. They placed a very high value on the people who had gone before them, their, their heroes of faith, and the opportunity to follow after them would have been an absolute honor. We can gather strength from the example of others who have endured and overcome Ultimately, though, our eyes need to be set on Jesus because he is our standard. He is our benchmark. We can, endure, we can pull encouragement from people who have gone before us, as the scriptures say, but he is the founder of our faith. Jesus knew that the joy of his defeat of sin and death would far outweigh the pain and anguish of the cross, which was for him more than just a physical trial. He despised the shame and carried out this perfect atonement. It reveals how sin had absolutely no power over him. Jesus despised it because he knew it could do no eternal damage. We are instructed to lay down our burdens and the sin which clings so closely Running with the weight of multiple needless burdens will slow our progress and tire us out. Paul uses the analogy in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. 
We need to grab every advantage we have been given through Jesus so that we are able to keep on with our calling. Verse 3 continues in Hebrews 12. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. If we think, if we think of, of Jesus and we get this idea that his, his life was almost unattainable, and so while his example is the greatest, we tend to put it aside and try to find more realistic and human goals for ourselves. The truth is, when you look through scripture, these faith giants who had gone before us all had their focus set on God. This is what made their lives so remarkable. He was their standard. We are so much more than they did because we now have Jesus as an example who became a man and shared in our frailty so that he could be the one we set our eyes on. We have also been given the Holy Spirit, ladies and gentlemen. John 14, verse 16 to 17 says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Greek word for a helper in this context is said to have multiple translations, and this is brilliant. Just listen to some of these. The Spirit is our advocate. He is on our side because he sees us as he would see Jesus. The Spirit is our comforter. He loves to engage and stand beside us in moments of hurt. The Spirit is our encourager. He urges us on to better and more worthwhile pursuits of life. The Spirit is our counselor, imparting wisdom and guidance. And yes, the Spirit is also our helper, in the same way Jesus was to his disciples during his time on earth. However, the Holy Spirit is not limited as Jesus was in a body of flesh. When endurance feels like an impossibility, hold on to this truth. Let's be more aware of the things of the Spirit. We are not just flesh and blood. When we bring the Holy Spirit into our daily lives, there is a lot less futility because of how he encompasses all of our needs. Look from verses 4 to 11. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted yet to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. 
Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it reveals and yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. As uncomfortable as it may be, discipline is a key biblical factor and a key biblical principle. It's one that's vital for our growth and relationship with our Heavenly Father. The author reminds the Hebrews that they had not yet shed blood in their battle against sin, a picture of Jesus and his example of greatest resistance to sin. Remember that the Hebrew audience has been suffering persecution and it is believed that there was an underlying concern about this church falling away from the faith as a result. The author is trying to counter some of this wavering. He issues both a warning of challenges to come and also an exhortation to take a stand more firmly against their flesh and to stay true to their course. This teaches us that if our focus is on Jesus, and we look at how he overcame the hostility against himself, he must be our benchmark. Verses five and six are a reference to Proverbs three, verse 11 to 12. And we will get into the the topic of discipline more deeply, but it is important to note that the author teaches us through this passage by reminding the Hebrews that it is by discipline that God shows his love for us and for them, which in turn, is applicable in life now. Those of us who are privileged to have been brought up in a home where we had a parent or parents who disciplined us through love, know that it was a very important part of our growth. As a matter of fact, discipline in our human context often reveals that your parent has the desire to see you become a better person. The author really hits this home by saying that if we do not receive discipline from God, we are considered illegitimate, meaning that we have no part in the inheritance that God has prepared. We must not lose heart when God is disciplining us. As we endure chastisement, we grow in spiritual maturity, provided we allow what we are enduring to build us. Furthermore, as some translations say, We should not despise or look down on God's discipline, especially when it is clear that it is for our betterment. Scripture reveals that even the discipline of our earthly fathers is of value, and that it results in respect towards the one who administers it. How much more valuable is it when God, our perfect heavenly father, disciplines us? It leads to life. Due to our humanity and our weaknesses, We will make mistakes. God will discipline us. But that is not all that scripture has to say about it. Romans 8 verse 28 to 29. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. 
I often forget this simple and incredible reminder that despite taking my eyes off of Jesus, even when the situation becomes dire as a result, God is able to work it together for my good. That's a heck of an encouragement right there. I'd like us to take a brief look at some of the more nitty-gritty parts of this topic. But before we do, there are two important truths I want us to consider. The first is that Jesus took our every iniquity, the ones before and ahead. The second is that God is a good God. The scriptures say every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or change or shadow due to change. God's discipline may look different in each of our lives. How he carries it out would depend on each of our personal situations. I think it is of value to know that throughout scripture we can see that people knew when God was disciplining them. There was never any confusion on the matter. Just take the simple example of Jonah, who refused to go to Nineveh and preach to the city about God, but instead tried to run in the opposite direction. He didn't get a whale with it. <laughs> it's the only bad part, not make, I promise. <laughs> Another example is Miriam, who rebelled against Moses, God's chosen leader, and she was struck with leprosy. In both of these cases, each knew why God was disciplining them. Let me make an important distinction, though. God's kind of discipline is not to be taken as or confused with condemnation. Recall Romans 8 verse 1, which says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but after the Spirit. Our Heavenly Father will not condemn us. A rebuke is very different from condemnation. God wants us to share in his holiness because it is through this that we see the yield of what the author calls the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We do experience the consequences of sinful actions because we allow Satan a foothold. We have permitted him to operate freely when we live outside of the spiritual bounds that God has set Consequences are very different from discipline, though. The unfortunate news is that often when there are consequences, it doesn't mean that discipline has been dealt with. The fact of life is that we live in a world dominated by sin, which means that almost no one is living according to the spiritual precepts God has set. As a result, we are surrounded by the dangers of evil because Satan is operating freely. We can't think we won't be affected by this. I think there are times when we are faced with tragedy, and particularly if it is something ongoing, it is often a natural response to believe that God is punishing or disciplining us for some sin we've committed. While we must always examine ourselves according to the word of God, there is also another aspect to consider. Do we remember that we battle not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, against the authorities, against the cosmic authorities over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. We're not helpless either. 
we have God Almighty present with us at all times. He neither leaves us nor forsakes us. Living attuned to the Holy Spirit and his guidance can and will give us the direction we need to navigate through this world. We would otherwise be susceptible to every danger and have no help to call on, but we don't. We've got the Holy Spirit. God is good and his mercies are new toward us each day. There is no doubt that he is holy and sin is detestable to him. And therefore, as a result, we will all experience discipline at various stages in our lives. The truth, however, is that God will always discipline in love according to his word. We must weigh the outcome. Is there the peaceable fruit of righteousness? If yes, we know that our God and Father is administering discipline. If not, then take your stand. Fight against the troubles. We need that constant communion with the Lord. Let's continue in, uh, in the chapter from verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. See that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The author is giving this exhortation to the Hebrews on the proper response to the challenges they face through persecution. He got his metaphor, most likely from Isaiah 35, verse three, verses three to four. And in this chapter, is speaking about the coming of a flourishing church and is an encouragement of better times to come. The mention of hands and knees is a good example because that's often where we feel the pains of hard work. I don't know if you've had a, a long day in a garden or doing some physical manual labor and you just you feel your knees and your hands. I do, definitely. <laughs> He's saying to them in a way, take heart, greater and better things are coming. The author is encouraging the Hebrews to work together and help each other. God places a massive value on us being able to operate as a body. We all know that when Jesus returns, he is coming to claim what the Bible calls his bride, which is the church. We have that remarkable responsibility to pull together in unity. I often find it of value to think about examples of people who have overcome great obstacles in order to achieve a positive outcome. Just think about that story we began with today. It shows that it isn't an impossibility. Digging deep and pushing ourselves is an important part of life. It's also a vital spiritual principle, but one that we don't bear on our own. Isaiah 41 verse 10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. 
I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The author tells the Hebrews to strive for peace with everyone, not just our fellow believers, also holiness. I like how the ESV puts it because it denotes a real need to make a great effort, which, as I'm sure a lot of us will know, is required when our tempers get involved. We do this because this is how people outside of the church will see Jesus in us. In fact, scripture is full of instructions about peace and its value. Matthew 5 verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Romans 14 verse 19, so then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Romans 12 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Peace is the one thing that eludes the world around us. As if we behave in a way where we promote and work towards it, even when, when moments, in moments where an aggressive response feels more appropriate, people will notice. A vital part of our calling is to be ambassadors for Christ. The author warns the Hebrews about allowing members of the church body to sh- fall short of the calling God has placed upon them, or even not to obtain it. His reason is clear. Many people will become affected thereafter. Certain commentaries imagine that when he speaks about this root of bitterness, his mind is on the events in Deuteronomy 29 verse 18, which says, beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. This picture of our unity as a a church is visible again. We are responsible for each other, being brothers and sisters in Christ. We are called to pull alongside each other and even sometimes correct and challenge. As brothers and sisters in Christ, each of us needs to be open to this. The author's example of Esau, alongside his instruction to abstain from sexual sin, may seem to be on different sides of the same coin, but in reality, they both reveal how throwing away honor and faithfulness for quick pleasure, choosing the shallow delights of the flesh over the blessing of God and his heavenly inheritance will always result in pain, rejection, and loss. Esau's loss is a good example of a consequence of his thoughtless actions, albeit a very harsh one. Unfortunately, this sentence can be likened to the plight of a person who chooses to live apart from God and upon their departure from this world stands before him with the full weight of consciousness of sin, a now repentant heart, but finding that the opportunity has passed them by. Scary. Let's be accountable to each other. Daily, we need to crucify our flesh, as the scripture says. Let's read on from verse 18 now. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice, 
whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We see a contrasting scene here with the terrifying events that occurred in the giving of the law which was done at Mount Sinai. And then a picture of Mount Zion which is related to Jesus and the new covenant that he has bought for us. The writer is telling his Hebrew audience who were likely still quite prone to living according to the law, so placing the responsibility upon themselves to strive for perfection and a constant need for atonement, that they must now consider where they stand according to God. No longer is there that tangible and fearsome presence of holiness, which without the covering of the blood of Jesus would have pierced the hearts of the people. When God spoke, the Israelites could not even bear to hear it for fear. Moses himself, one of the two people in the Bible who claimed to be a friend of God, could not even stand the sight of God's holiness descending upon the earth in a physical manner. I just don't think we can picture what it must have been like. He brings all of this to their attention because this is what living according to the law represented, judgment, a constant need to meet an impossible mark and the holiness of God present in an unapproachable way. There was no bridge, no mediator. He tells them, this is not the way it is, but that instead they have come to a place where celebration and great inheritance thrive. People made perfect where before they could not be. And to live in the presence of the one who shed his blood for us and became our champion. Mount Zion is a real place. It is the highest point in Jerusalem. But the scripture was not so much speaking about the place, but more about what it represents. It was here that Abraham was provided with a lamb for the offering in place of his son. Jacob had his dream where he was allowed to climb to heaven. David bought the threshing floor from Ornan to use it for sacrificial atonement, and Solomon built the beautiful temple. These miraculous things were a foreshadowing of greater to come. God's provision, our access to him, the eternal atonement of Jesus and God's resplendent glory. Ezekiel 36, verse 26 to 27 describes, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The chapter finishes with verses 25 to 29. So let's read from there. 
See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I love that last verse. We have just seen the comparison made between the two covenants. Now there is a much more solemn tone. As we read in verse 24 about the blood of Jesus speaking a better word than the blood of Abel, there is another picture of difference in the covenants that God has made with us. There is enough in just that verse to preach a whole sermon, but for the sake of time, I will condense it. Abel's blood was shed without his consent in an act that demanded retribution. Jesus shed his blood willingly so that we did not have to face the wrath of God for the sin that we could never make right. The warning about the results of sin and the rejection of Jesus' offering still stands. We will not escape the judgment of God. His voice shook the earth all those many years ago, but he did also promise that this kind of relationship would be changed. The reference in verse 26 is from Haggai 2, verse 6. And we haven't got time to explore the context, but I would encourage you to take a closer look at that scripture because it is very deep. The author reveals that it is through this phrase that we can see how God would take away the physical aspect of the law and replace it with the spirit, which cannot be changed or affected by us. As such, we should be thankful because this has changed everything between us and God. Now we are able to have a close and personal relationship with him through Jesus. A heart of love, worship, awe, And reverent fear is the acceptable way to be towards God. The final verse reminds us why our God is a consuming fire. Let us never forget how holy and awesome God is by becoming complacent about the sacrifice of Jesus. As I conclude, let's look at the key points we can take away from this today and apply. Firstly, Endurance is a natural response to a focus that is set in on Jesus and his example. We have the great gift of the Holy Spirit as a help in times when we lose focus. The discipline that we receive from God is a sign of his love and our place as sons. Let us not look down on or become bitter when we go through this. God is bringing about peace and righteousness in us. We have the blessing of being able to call on our brothers and sisters to stand alongside us and be a voice of truth to us. We benefit from a much greater relationship with our Heavenly Father. No longer 
is that the fearsome unapproachableness. But now we can enter boldly into his presence because of Jesus, our mediator. As such, let us give the appropriate honor and worship to God and not refuse or reject this great gift. I'd like to invite the band up. Let's worship our Heavenly Father.